Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartim, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. I'm so happy to be back. It is January 2022. I can't believe it. Um, my name is Lynn Vartan. You're listening to the Apex Hour. We're so happy to be back for our spring semester. Um, every year, once a year, we do an event that features one of our very own faculty members. And today I have Julie McCowan here in the studio with me because she is our featured lecturer for this year. Uh, Julie is a professor of English at Southern Utah University. She teaches courses in literature, critical theory, composition, and all kinds of other things. We are going to talk about her new book and her research topic, which is so amazing. But before we get to that, I just would like to say welcome, Julie. Thank you. Well, uh, I'm happy to be here. I'm just excited to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, were you surprised to win faculty lecture? I, I was surprised. It was, you know, I was happy to throw my hat in the ring, so to speak, and, you know, take a shot at it. And I was just very, sh you know, pleasantly surprised and thrilled to be chosen for this honor. Yay. Well, you have been teaching here for five years. And yes. we were talking about some of the interesting classes that you're teaching this semester. And um, yeah, do you mind just telling me again what you're teaching this semester? I think they're really cool. Yeah, so this semester I'm teaching uh, English 2010, that's our intermediate writing class, and I'm teaching it with the theme of writing about feminism. So we're kind of exploring feminism and like, you know, how it's a kind of contested term and hard to, you know, sometimes hard to understand. Uh, then I'm teaching an English 4210, this is a literary, literary history course, um, but we're doing it on American women writers, uh, taking kind of a broad historical look at the history of women writers in American literature. And then I'm doing a literature senior capstone. This is our senior class for our literature majors, kind of helping them fine-tune papers and get them ready for conference presentations, that sort of thing. Well, I have two questions based on that. First of all, women writers uh, in over this huge course of time, do you have any favorites? I know we're going to talk about a woman writer and, and all of that, but do you have any other favorites or like if somebody was listening and said, yeah, you know, actually, I'm not sure, you know, who maybe I need to brush up and I want to get into some women writers. Who do you recommend that people try reading? Oh, wow. I could give you such a long list of that. Um, <laughs> but I think one of my favorites, it's actually one that I, we just started uh, uh, reading and talking about in that class this week. Um, it's Hannah Webster Foster's novel, The Coquette. Oh, um, I don't know it at all. Most people don't. So yeah. this is an early American novel. And that's kind of since I'm main, I specialized in early American literature uh, in my doctoral work. Um, but yeah, it's this um, uh, seduction novel published in 1797. Um, it's written in epistolary form. This is like 
like a, a novel that's written in a form of like letters back and forth to people. Oh. Um, and so it's got kind of like a, it's like this intrigue and it's like this um, sort of love triangle, like trying to decide like, are you team Boyer or team Sanford? And it's, you know, really has a lot of these really interesting things about the kind of gender politics and relationships in early American society that I really love teaching it. And the, you know, I've taught it several times before and, and students really get into it. They're sort of surprised by how, how fascinating it is because you wouldn't think, you know, novels from that time period they get a bad rap that yeah. they're boring yeah um, and this one actually kind of dispels that myth oh my gosh tell me the the coquette yeah, and then the tell me the author one more time uh, hannah webster foster okay i'm so. i'm definitely going to check that out thank you for that recommendation oh, yeah, absolutely <laughs> my other question regarding the classes that you're teaching is i was curious you know when you're working with um are you know particularly seniors who are you know about ready to go off and kind of do their next thing. Yeah. Um, and you're working with them on how to refine their research and refine their writing or, or find their voice. What are some of the, the common things that you find that that level of writer struggles with? Are there any sort of uh, general things that you find that, that, that people are struggling with? Um, I don't know if it's necessarily struggling with, but maybe it's something that they haven't had to do before. Because I think most students, when they're writing papers for their classes, it's kind of a one and done. Mm. They write it, sometimes, you know, write it in a very short time period, they turn it in, and then they never think about it again. Right. Uh, and so for, you know, the class where I'm teaching, you know, working with the seniors on their capstone papers, it's like, well, let's go find a paper that you wrote for a class maybe a year ago, two years ago. And, you know, maybe you were, you didn't give it its full attention and you really wanted to, you know, dive back in into it and do more research. And we can look at writing as this recursive process. It's, you know, you're never done with a piece of writing. Like you talk to any writers, it's like right. they're always fine tuning it. They're always tweaking it. There's always something they can do more. Right. And a lot of times, you know, students don't get that opportunity to really experience that kind of writing process. And so that's why I love this senior capstone is students really get to experience that process of being a writer and tweaking things. Oh, that's so cool. Mm -hmm. Well, now you're on the teaching side of it and on the professional side of it. Let's talk a little bit about how you came to it. So how did you come to the discipline of English, uh, you know, as as a kid? What what led you to want to be a professor and uh, in writing and in English? Um, I that's that's interesting. I don't know if I was ever like dreaming of being a literature yeah. <laughs> professor as a small child. I don't think that was kind of a thing. Um, it was really kind of a matter of just, you know, trying something. Because I think when I started, especially when I was an undergrad and I you know, was thinking of what major to declare, I was thinking, okay, do I want to do political science? Do I want to do history? Do I want to do English? I couldn't really decide. And I think I actually hadn't decided until the night before orientation. And oh, I was wow. just kind of like, Oh, I'll do literary studies. That that'll work. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was just kind of that. Well, I'll try that, and and we'll see. And you know, it was you know sort of that. I was like, oh, okay, this is something that's good. And then I thought, oh, well, I'll try graduate school in English. And and uh, it was just one of those things of you know, I tried it and realized, hey, I I actually really like this. And you know, when I started teaching, you know, it was oh, I'm in the classroom. This is actually not necessarily something I thought of doing, but now that I'm doing it, I realized. 
I, I was really engaged and passionate about it. And it was mm. like, oh, okay, this this works. Were you always a reader growing up? Oh, yes. I, I was always a reader. Um, my mom loves to tell the story of when I learned how to read, I'd follow her around the house reading books to her while she was cleaning the house. Oh, and, like, in a, my in a slightly, like, annoying way. Um, but I mean, a, like, maybe cute and annoying. That's adorable. I was just so proud of reading. And so I'd follow her around. And, you know, we were always going to libraries and getting stacks of books. So, yeah, I've always, always been a reader. And are you still that way? I am. I've, I've switched a lot of the uh, reading to uh, ebooks now to, uh-huh. to you know, try to save space so I don't get like a house covered in books. Exactly. But, but yeah. no, I always try to do a little bit of leisure reading, you know, not for work, my own for fun reading every night. Yeah. Um, just because that's just a, a way to unwind for me. Yeah. What's the best, most recent thing that you've read in that sort of more fun reading area? Uh, ooh. It's a lot of good options there. Um, <laughs> good readers always find good things to read, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, right now I'm currently working, uh, f- finishing um, Jenny Lawson's book, Broken. I don't know if you've uh, ever yeah. read any uh-huh, Jenny Lawson uh-huh, books, uh-huh. Uh, but her latest one, Broken, that's what I'm, I've been reading right now, and I just absolutely love it. It's both, it's hysterical, because if you've read any Jenny Lawson, she just has these absolutely hysterical stories that she tells. Mm-hmm. But then also in Broken, you know, she's really open and honest about mental health and kind right. of really trying to work to dispel that stigma. And so right. I've really been in, interested in that. Okay, cool. Well, thank you for that great, like, way into who you are as a <laughs> scholar and all that. But the reason that you are the faculty distinguished lecturer, the way that process works is that faculty submit papers of things that they've researched and, and then one of them is chosen for presentation. Mm-hmm. And so your, uh, work in this area is on a fascinating woman. So yeah. give us the, you know, the first in snapshot and then we'll get into details. <laughs> Tell us about your person that you've written about. Yeah, so you know, my work is about uh, this woman named Martha Maxwell. She was a taxidermist in the 18, working in the 1860s and 1870s. She was largely working in Colorado. So she's this you know trailblazing, groundbreaking taxidermist who you know was a highly skilled taxidermist doing all of this really great innovative work, but. After her death, she was just sort of forgotten and lost to history. Uh, and so, you know, part of my work was publishing this new critical edition of a book about her, um, trying to bring attention back to it. Cause it's always when I tell people about Martha Maxwell, it's like, she's amazing. I've never heard of her. Right. And yeah, I just think that's kind of sad. And the book was just published um, and it is called On the Plains and Among the Peaks or How Mrs. Maxwell Made Her Natural History Collection. And it's um, a critical edition. So the original author is Mary Dart and then Julie McCown has really given us the the deep dive into it as we go (laughs) through it. So that book just came out and it is, remind me, the publisher, University of Colorado Press? University Press of Colorado. University Press of Colorado. So so um, as you're getting to know this topic, listeners, definitely check out that book. It's available wherever you can find it. Um, okay, I want to just talk about that first image in with Martha Maxwell with her mm-hmm. exhibition. Yeah. And that's kind of the that was sort of your first in with her too, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And so this is an image mm-hmm. of this massive uh exhibition, this tableau, you can explain Mm -hmm. what it is that she did. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, so that's her most famous work is this uh, taxidermy exhibit. Um, this was part of the Philadelphia Centennial Exposition, so like the celebration of the centennial of the of the U.S. And so she, it was this giant taxidermy display. Um, it consisted of like 47 mammal species, over 200 bird species. So you, most people think of like smaller taxidermy displays. This was this massive thing that took up this whole side of the show building it was in, you know, and just going way up high. And so it's just this massive thing that is just chock full of taxidermy sort of set against this kind of artificial background. So, you know, Maxwell had like a cougar leaping through the air, chasing after a deer. Um, So, yeah, it's just this really kind of awe-inspiring taxidermy display. And like that was the first photograph I saw of her taxidermy, and I was just captivated by it. Do you remember the moment you saw it and where it was? I think I was in my office, uh, my office at UT Arlington, and I was just thumbing through stuff, you know, looking for, you know, an example of a woman naturalist working with animals. And it's like, I saw that photo and just kind of stopped me in my tracks. Yeah. And you showed that photo earlier. And it's just so amazing. She... There was like a cave in it also. Tell me about the cave. Yeah. So there was a cave in the center of it that was this sort of little den that Maxwell could retreat to. Um, And she would actually stay there at times during the during the centennial. Um, It was partly a way for her to save money. You know, she didn't have to go like put herself up someplace in a hotel. She could just stay in this little cave that she built in the back of her exhibit. Um, But yeah, it's just it kind of again shows you that sort of massive dimension of the exhibit. Yeah. So she was kind of there to answer questions and to talk. And then when she got tired, she'd just go in the cave. I mean, (laughs) almost in a way like part of the exhibit. Yeah. And I think, you know, people did kind of treat her almost as much of an object of curiosity as her animals. Like they were, you know, as much as there were questions about the actual animals, there were questions about like, oh, well, who is she? Like, how did she do this? You know, what is like, you know, is she an Amazon? Like that was a question that people would ask. Like, Ah. so they were just really fascinated that this woman and you know she was actually a very small statured woman. that's what i was gonna ask oh, yeah, yeah she was not this like big you know big kind of uh physical person like presence she was a very diminutive woman and actually in a lot of reviews they talk about her as like a little lady or a little lady of refined sensibility <laughs> so it really kind of clashes when you think of like all of these giant animals that she went around hunting and then you know skinning and turning into taxidermy oh my gosh i mean it's just a lot to think about yeah. Visually, and I can I can see why it was such a spectacle and why people were so mm-hmm. curious about it. So that gives us a great way in there. <laughs> it's time for our first musical break, so we're gonna we're gonna let that that topic sit for a second. We're absolutely gonna come back and talk about it more. Um, we talked about some different musical tastes, and Julie, you have awesome musical tastes. So I Thank took some you. recommendations for you from you, and um, you have also taught a class on women in hip hop as well. Yes. So mm-hmm. um, and so you have a, a wide range of incredible female artists, both in hip hop and indie style music that you're really mm-hmm. interested in. And the first one I'm going to play is one that I also like, which is the artist Sudan Archives. And the song that I've got is Not For Sale. Um, that's one of her singles. And you're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. Be free. Time to 
to spread my wings I don't like leeches All that nonsense gonna get back with ya Don't got time for snitches You're pulling me down but you was my sister My strings propagate through space and time Here and there at the same time And it mentions in basic rhyme You ain't gotta be mad Look deep and go higher when you climb song was Nant for Sale by Sudan Archives. What a cool end to that song with like the strings coming more and more up front in it. Um, as always, I want to remind you that uh, there's a playlist uh, that's available on our website, which is seu.edu slash apex. And uh, if you go to the podcast tab, you can absolutely subscribe to the podcast. But also, if you're interested in the music that we play, there's a open source Spotify playlist that's called played on apex hour. Uh, if you want to hear more of the music that we've played on the show. I am in the studio with Julie McCowan, and we are talking about her research into 
to Margaret Maxwell, who was a frontier taxidermist, mm-hmm. uh, and all of the different things that come along with that. Um, so welcome back, Julie. Thank you. So I want to get into more of how your research into Margaret then led to this book. So you see this picture, and you discover that there's this naturalist taxidermist. Mm -hmm. And then how do you go to find that her sister wrote this book about her? Yeah. So, you know, once I realized there was this book that was going to offer kind of background and history about Martha Maxwell, I thought, okay, I have to get a hold of it. And I interlibrary loaned it. And they actually got me like a first edition copy of it and sent it to me like through the interlibrary loan, which I was like, are you sure you want to do that? Like, just give me a random like it because it, it was like this really antique book. And I thought, are you sure you want me to take that home? Uh, but then I, I read that and was sort of taken with it. And I ended up writing about Martha Maxwell and the book at my dissertation. And it was always just kind of in the back of my mind as I was learning more about Maxwell and Dart, I was realizing like they're not talked about in any uh, any kind of major discussions of taxidermy. Like there's an excellent book on taxidermy, Rachel Poliquin's The Breathless Zoo. It's this super comprehensive look at the history of taxidermy, but it doesn't mention Martha Maxwell. And and that's written by a woman. Yes, yes. Interesting. Yeah. And so that's a, a book on taxidermy written by a woman yeah. and mm-hmm. not acknowledging but Martha's not the only woman in taxidermy. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, you know, she wasn't mentioned in that book. And uh. I thought, that's just such a travesty because she's so amazing and was such a pioneer. And that just kind of had that thing stuck in my head of, I want to get this book out to more people or get it to be more accessible so that more students, more scholars can read this work, learn about Maxwell, and, you know, kind of restore her to her rightful place in the history of science and the history of taxidermy. Mm-hmm. And so that was just a project I had in the back of my mind. And then when I came here to SUU, I was you know looking for a research project. I'm like, hey, I'm going to do that. So she was a, a, a taxidermist of great skill. It wasn't yes. that she's not known because she just wasn't that good, right? Yeah, so talk absolutely. about her her skill and her prowess in this area. Yeah, so she was really, you know, very highly skilled, very talented at taxidermy. She invented a lot of new techniques and new sort of innovations that, you know, other taxidermists at the time were also developing new techniques, uh, but no one really had re- had recognized her for what she was doing. So, was this time a time of great growth in that in that area in general? A little bit. So Mm. with taxidermy, it was, uh, you know, it had been practiced pretty extensively by that point. And there were some, you know, what would come to be big name taxidermists who were working in the later 19th century. But taxidermy as a field at that time wasn't as kind of professionalized and seen as like this serious, like, credit to art and taxidermy until like the early 20th century. Oh, okay. So so Maxwell is really working kind of at the forefront of mm. all of this. And so she developed some new techniques. What yes. were some of those? Uh, so she designed some plaster body molds that she would use to, um, you know, drape the skins over. If you're thinking about like how the taxidermy is actually created, you skin the animal and then you drape it over a plaster body mold. Um, and the plaster body mold, you know, that allows the animal to look more lifelike. 
Because right. if you look at really, really early examples of taxidermy, they're kind of scary looking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's clear that, you know, the recreation of the taxidermy, that's not anywhere close to capturing what the animal looked like in real life. So having those kind of plaster body molds was a new thing. She also developed a special pickling solution that helped the, uh, the hides, um, stay soft and prevent them deteriorating, prevent insects from eating them, because that's always a problem with taxidermy insect predation. Um, And she was also really well known for um, putting her animals into natural habitat groupings. So, Mm -hmm. you know, rather than just have, here's a taxidermied animal in a glass case with nothing around it, she would put collections of her animals, like, in these artificial landscapes to try to recreate what they would look like out in the wild Mm. um, and sort of give people that kind of vicarious experience and really a kind of more holistic understanding of these animals. And so talk a little bit, you know, you you mentioned you were looking for a naturalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if you could sort of share how she fits the mold of naturalist or maybe how she doesn't. Mm-hmm. Well, she fits the mold, you know, kind of the thing there is, you know, in the you know, in this time period, the 19th century and earlier, you know, a lot of women naturalists were really working with plants, working with botany, you know, working in fields that would kind of keep them close to home um, and sort of keep them within the domestic sphere. Um, and so in that way, as a naturalist, as a female naturalist, Maxwell was really this kind of, you know, outlier in that, you know, she was working with animals. She was going out and traipsing through the Rocky Mountains, climbing up like sheer cliff sides and, you know, shooting these animals. And, and and that way, that was unusual for a woman at the time to be doing that. Um, but that was a pretty kind of standard practice for a natural history for someone like John James Audubon. Like that's what he was known for is just spending, you know, weeks and months on end, you know, tra- you know, traipsing around the wilderness of the United States collecting bird specimens. Mm. So I guess when I think of the word naturalist, I think of more, you know, one who studies by drawing and, and that kind of thing rather than... Mm-hmm hunting and then doing taxidermy. Is that uh, also part of what makes this situation unique? Um, well, natural history, natural like natural science in America in in early America, so you know, nineteenth century and earlier, you know, this was all new. These were all new animals that Europeans and European settlers they'd never seen before. So it wasn't like they couldn't go look at a textbook, they couldn't go look at illustrations because no one had seen them before. Right. So a big part of it was getting people to just go out, like you think of like the Lewis and Clark expedition. Like it was all about okay, we have to go out into this new country or new to uh, new to the you know the Europeans you know go out to this new place and find these animals and you know of course you know without you know video cameras or you know right. photos right. you know it was really that was what they had to do would have to go out and you know shoot the animals and you know, actually bring back the the specimens to study right and then going back to the 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 gender aspect of it so uh, you know, how common was it for a woman to be involved in in taxidermy at that time? We talked about the naturalist angle that that was more plants for, mm-hmm. for women. What about the taxidermy side? There are some, I think. There are some. Um, I believe I'm 
I'm forgetting her name, but there was a, a British woman who would did who did taxidermy mm-hmm. a little bit before Maxwell. But really, um, you know, having these women doing this taxidermy was kind of this really novel, new, unusual thing at the time, and that was that was part of why Maxwell had such notoriety in her day because it was like, oh, whoa, we've never seen a woman doing this mm-hmm. kind of stuff, let alone doing it really well. Right. And so her, you know, her legacy was is more or less forgotten until now until yeah. you. And and why do you think that is? Like what why has nobody stumbled upon her? Why why wasn't she in mm-hmm. that woman's book on taxidermy? Mm-hmm. I and mean, what what's what do you think? Um that's a good question and it's one I've thought a lot about as I've been working with Martha Maxwell trying to think okay well why like clearly I look at the you know the photographs of her taxidermy and I'm just amazed and then I'm sad that we don't have like all of those taxidermy specimens are gone now um I think you know it's hard to maybe pinpoint exactly why I think some of it is obvious and sadly you know is sexism is that you know she's a woman and I think even though people acknowledge that she was really talented I think there was still that sense of being dismissive or thinking of it as merely this curiosity. Um, but I also think it's unfortunately that Maxwell died so young. You know, she mm. died in 1881. She was only 50 years old. Um, and I think had she lived longer, she probably would have, first off, she would have kept better care of her specimens, been more proactive and focused on, you know, getting getting them into a museum, getting them into a university collection. She probably would have kept on building her specimen collection. Mm. And so, you know, and she would have, you know, if she had lived long enough for, you know, people to finally realize that, oh, we should save these taxidermy specimens for history and posterity, you know, then I think it would have been a different story. But I think mm. because she died when she did so young, I think that's m- largely maybe why we don't we haven't heard about her. It's so interesting because that the the image of the exhibition, um, you know, for the centennial is just so striking. You would yeah. just think that somebody would have picked up on that and found mm-hmm. that and put that in the books before now. Yeah, was it so extreme? Maybe was her work more extreme than others? Where she because she was doing such large scale landscapes. Um, I don't know if it was necessarily that it was so extreme because you did have other taxidermists at the time. You know, like uh, I think maybe the most famous one is Carl Akeley. He did a lot of the taxidermy at the Natural History Museum in New York. Um, so he did these big, huge taxidermy tableau. Um, so I, I don't know if that's necessarily why it, it is really kind of that puzzle that, you know, all of the scientists at the day, you know, were really intrigued by her taxidermy. They like talked about how skilled it was. I think it was just one of those things that they didn't really think about the need to preserve or save it until it was too late. Mm, um, Cause it I wasn't, see. yeah, it wasn't really until like the early 20th century that, you know, you had the state university of Colorado be like, Oh, we want to save this. We want to go like, let's go get that taxidermy. Now, you know, they finally recognized the value of it, but then it was unfortunately at that point gone. Yeah. The collection hadn't been taken care of. It'd been like left out in the snow, like during an epic blizzard one year. And oh my it was just, yeah, it was kind of, they, they realized what they had too late. Yeah. Interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, that's so cool. I have millions more questions. Um, but one more question before we we leave this and play another piece of music is that um, you do you think I always wonder with with people who, you know, really get deeply into a certain area, do you think that she was obsessed with her work? I think that's a fair assessment. I think she was kind of very 
uh, obsessed or very sort of very focused, very mm. driven by this. Mm. Um, you know, she saw it very much passionately, like. You know, it was something that she was just very into and very excited about. But then she was also very aware of, you know, kind of trying to like she saw herself as this role model where she was trying to, you know, be this example of what women could achieve. And so, you know, she was trying to make sure that was she was presenting that correct public face to people. Mm-hmm. And and but yeah, I would say calling her sort of you know an obsessive taxidermy collector would be and her motivation yeah. for the work was was for knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. And and that was that's very clear in in her quotes and in the writing. Yeah. 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 So she wasn't just going out and doing taxidermy like to have cool trophies on her walls or like to show like how tough of a woman she was and like look at all these feats of strength I did. She was really opposed to that yeah. concept yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah, she was really very interested. Like it wasn't so much like oh that's such a feat of strength to go out and shoot this massive buffalo. It was oh look at all of the careful observation and study and like patient work that goes into this and you know how that you know that's just producing this you know fantastic natural history knowledge that you know otherwise wouldn't be there so Mm -hmm. it was all about that pursuit of knowledge all about you know this sort of craft and skill that she was doing that's cool awesome well it's time for another song um so another group that you and i share an affinity for is ila bamba yes and the song i have from them is gabriel and once again you're listening to ksuu thunder 91.1 
All right. Well, welcome back, everyone. That was Gabriel by Ila Mamba. And you're listening to KSU Thunder 91.1. I am here with Julie McCown. Welcome back, Julie. Thanks. And we are talking about her research into Margaret Maxwell, uh, the frontier taxidermist, and, um, and her new book. And the book is called On the Plains and Among the Peaks, or How Mrs. Maxwell Made Her Natural History Collection. Uh, Julie, you have edited, you have done the critical edition of this book. Yes. And um, that means that you have made commentary, additional research, yeah. an extensive introduction, and really gone into more detail. But the author is Mary Dart. Tell us about Mary. Yeah, so Mary Dart is actually Martha Maxwell's half-sister. Um, and um, uh, Martha and Mary were, you know, had a very close relationship throughout their life. Um, and actually shortly after uh, Martha and her husband James moved out to Boulder, Colorado, Mary came out to join them. Um, and actually um, Mary and Martha, or Mary would accompany Martha on a lot of the hunting expeditions. So, like she'd be right there with Martha Maxwell while she's hunting and, you know, going after all of these specimens. Um, so she really was a, a big sort of supporter and and sort of source of, um, uh, I don't want to say inspiration, but sort of a support system for yeah. Martha. Um, and, you know, she did, um, you know, help her at the Philadelphia Centennial. Like she would take shifts where, you know, she'd be the one standing in front of the taxidermy oh. exhibit and fielding the relentless questions from people. Um, and so then you know, it was also after the Centennial Exposition, you know, Maxwell, with Dart's help, decided to publish this book. And so Dart kind of took the lead, but Maxwell would sort of work with her and kind of help her, you know, add stuff to the book. Um, you know, but she was the one that really kind of spear, or Mary was the one who really kind of spearheaded that and, you know, trying to get this book off and running. And so the book actually starts out with quotes from the public who were yeah. at the show. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it does. It, it starts off with all of this kind of incredulous, like almost disbelief, like how could, you know, how could a woman do this? But then it was also kind of questions about, well, how did she kill it? Like, did she kill the animals? How did she kill them? I don't see any bullet holes on them. So <laughs> it was, you know, a lot of just this complete, utter fascination with it. Mm. What do you have any favorite uh, stories from the book or favorite moments? Um, I think there's there's so many moments that I think are are you know really interesting. There's you know a couple of really kind of harrowing storm scenes. Like there's one where um, Martha and her daughter Mabel were trying to descend a very steep mountain in like this raging storm with you know it's and it was at night so it was dark and there was these you know just torrential rainfall that was flooding the creeks and they're trying to descend down this mount this very sort of narrow winding mountain path and you know Mabel's horse was kind of acting up and then the burrow that they had was sort of being stubborn as they want to do and you know Mabel almost fell off the cliffside and then almost got swept away in a flash flood at one point and so it's this like really kind of dramatic thing and I, I thought it was interesting because it really does kind of highlight you know this was like dangerous work this wasn't just like oh go sit out on your porch and shoot some animals and make some taxidermy you know it was rough stuff that she was doing and Mabel is her daughter so she yeah. was taking her daughter along as well yeah she did she would take her daughter on these trips often uh, her husband James would follow her often Mary would come um, so yeah they, they did kind of was like family camping trips that also turned dangerous and involved shooting animals wow and was there any particular story that or something that you can remember from the book that was uh 
really surprising or, you know, maybe even uh, shocking? Um, I think the one thing that kind of really shocked me, I, I mentioned this passage in my in my presentation earlier today, um, was this scene where Maxwell had shot a mother uh, bear and, you know, turned this, you know, mother bear into a taxidermy specimen. Um, but she had also taken the bear's two cubs with her. Um, and then she was wanting to, I guess, test how accurate her taxidermy was. And she lets these two baby bear cubs out to see her, their taxidermy mother and it's this like really kind of horrific but then strange scene of like these two baby bear cubs like first so happy that they found their mother again but then they realize that their mother is like not alive is mm. a taxidermy specimen and they're just you know just beside themselves and like horribly upset and then you know Martha gets upset and starts crying and takes the bears away but it, that was just such a, a met like a surprising scene to me because mm. it's combining you know the sort of violence of tax and this kind of macabre, disturbing imagery. But then it's like cute, cuddly bears. And it's this weird kind of juxtaposition yeah. that that I, I just found really kind of fascinating. Yeah. As you did this research uh, into really both all of these women, but mm-hmm. but uh, and Martha in particular, I, do, do you have any uh, sort of takeaways did it did it change you in in your professional life at all did you learn from her and and in any particular way for yourself or anything we can learn now um that's interesting i think you know really maybe something that's admirable about martha maxwell is kind of her passion and her drive mm. you know the fact that she found this you know, this talent that she had for taxidermy and natural and, you know, natural history. And she just ran with it. It Mm -hmm. was like, this is what I want to do. This is what I was meant to do, what I was put here on the earth to do. And that's what I'm going to do it. You know, and she did it with passion and zeal. And, you know, she did it up until she, she died. And I think that's kind of, you know, I think that's really admirable. And she did it, you know, I, I mentioned in the presentation also, you know, she never really found financial success doing this. So it's not like she was getting rich doing it. This really was sort of a labor of love and passion on her part. And I think Mm. there's something really admirable about that. Mm, Yeah, fascinating. What would you like to see develop in her legacy going forward? Would you like her to be world renowned? I mean, like, where do do we go from here? You know, you have the book, um, and it's out there in the world. Like, Mm -hmm. what, what do you hope for her legacy? I mean, I would hope that, yeah, you know, I don't know if she will ever be world renowned. Uh, I mean, I mean, you know, girl can hope, but, um, <laughs> you know, and I think part of that is because we don't actually have her taxidermy specimens anymore. So I think, right. you know, that's unfortunately always going to kind of limit her reach. Right. We can't see what yeah. it what yeah. actually with, was. Yeah. Cause with a lot of other taxidermy pioneers, like their taxidermy specimens are saved. You can go to museums and look at them and take pictures of them. Um, but I would like to see her kind of be, restored to her rightful place so that, you know, when people talk about taxidermy pioneers, they don't just talk about Carl Akeley. They mm-hmm. don't just talk uh, about these these male taxidermists. They they talk about Martha Maxwell and they sort of give her her due and give her her credit. Mm, awesome. So I asked you this over lunch, but um, I'll ask you on air. Uh, are you, do you feel satisfied with what you have found from Martha or is there more work to be done? Do you feel like there's more information out there to find? 
I mean, I think when it comes to sort of archival research of lost figures, there's always that question of maybe there's more out there, maybe. Um, But I I do feel satisfied with what I've accomplished, with what I've put together with this book, that, you know, it's really, you know, doing what I can to sort of help elevate her story and bring her to more people's attention, Um, you know. I have hope that maybe sometime in the future, maybe there'll be some lost taxidermy specimen of hers that we can authenticate. And then I can go like look at it and you know, stare at it and have that kind of experience. But, you know, that that's more of kind of wishful thinking on my part, I think. Yeah, that's cool, though. I mean, wouldn't that be amazing if it somebody came and found you and said, I think we found one. That, you know? I know that would be remarkable. How do you authenticate taxidermy? I don't know. It, might, it would probably be a matter of trying to establish provenance. Yeah, um, right. You know, mm-hmm. figuring it, like trying to like follow the chain of ownership. Right, right, And right. see if you could. They don't sign. I mean, there's not yeah, a signature yeah, or a special thing yeah. or something. Yeah, and unless it was like a really distinctive thing, like if we had a photograph and you could like. Or distinctive technique that we yeah, is noticeable. Yeah, I think it would be really difficult. <laughs> Well, thank you for sharing that. Once again, the book is On the Plains and Among the Peaks, or How Mrs. Maxwell Made Her Natural History Collection. And the book is by originally Mary Dart, and the edition, the brand new edition, is by Julie McCowan. But you have done lots of other interesting research, and (laughs) I want to ask you about some other things. Absolutely. Um, Okay, so stop motion puppets. Yes. Tell me about that. Yeah. So that was actually the first article, like peer-reviewed article I ever had published. So it came about from a class I took on uh, my doctoral work at University of Texas at Arlington. You know, I was taking this class on animals and animal studies with the amazing Stacy Alimo. Um, and so I was trying to come up with, you know, a paper idea, like the, the big seminar paper for the end of that class. And I had initially been looking at, like, I don't know if you know Wes Anderson's movie, um, Fantastic Fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh-huh. I was kind of taken with that and was sort of playing around with the idea of maybe writing about that film because uh, I really liked the look of those animals. Mm. And so I was wanting to look to see like, okay, are there other films that look that kind of have that same visual aesthetic? And, you know, late night research one night led me to, you know, this 1937 film, Tale of the Fox by this uh, filmmaker, Ladislaw Starovich. Um, and yeah, it's this kind of um, Starovich is c- often called like the sort of anti-Disney because um, oh. he worked a lot like he did stop motion he was a stop motion filmmaker um, and he did a lot of work with fairy tales and folk tales like Disney does um, but he doesn't go with the warm fuzzy right. happy ending fairy tales he goes more with the sort of darker creepier like yeah. original right. European stories Interesting. Um, so yeah the tale of the fox it came out the same year Snow White and the Seven Dwarves came out really um, uh, yeah, yeah. But of course, it's like, you know, one of those like n- hardly anyone outside of like really specialized film circles knows about it. Um, but yeah, I watched a, a, co- a version of it that was on YouTube and I saw the animal puppets in that. And it was a similar kind of like fascination that I have with taxidermy. It's, you know, something that looks so much like animals and has this illusion of life, but it's an inanimate object. But actually, his puppets were made from, like, deer skin and, like, fur from wild animals. So it kind of, like, blurs the lines a little further. Um, But, yeah, it was just something that you know, kind of just ticked all the boxes for me as a scholar. I was like, this is fascinating and it's kind of creepy, but it's super cool and I want to write about it. Wow, that's amazing. So do you like the film? 
I like it. It's it's a very weird film. <laughs> so it's one of those like if you ever do watch it, I don't know if it's still on YouTube or not. I think that's really the most accessible way to find it. Um, but yeah, you watch it and you're going like, oh, that's cute. Ew, that's kind of weird. Like, wait, what? This this is a kids' film? Like, it's just yeah. kind of like you know some like really oddly violent, creepy moments to it, mm-hmm. and that really kind of talks of that sort of speaks to animal materiality and like how we think about and conceive of animals. So, so if you like kind of weird offbeat films and you're like a stop motion animation you know, kind of nerd like that, um, then yeah, you might like it. (laughs) So writing about animals, um, uh, researching things that have to do with animals, this seems like a common theme that you've explored in other areas. And and you've taught a class about writing about animals also. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about, uh, you know, your relationship to exploring animals and, and the project with animal uh, you know, tell me more about your fascination with that. And, and uh, maybe are there other areas you want to explore in that way? Yeah, I think my fascination with animals and animal studies, you know, I, I think it's partly that it's I'm, I'm really interested in those sort of divides or binaries between animal and human and like how we understand those categories of like, you know, well, you know, our you know, how are humans animals or how are we close to animals or like what's that division? How do we think about animals or how do we think with animals? And I just think it's a really ripe area for, you know, scholars to think about these kind of big, like almost sort of philosophical questions Mm -hmm. about, you know, how we're defining categories, how we're kind of making sense of the world. And and animals really kind of highlight a lot of those like big, um, almost sort of existential questions. Cool. That's fascinating. Awesome. Um, All right. We have one more song, and this song is Sampa the Great. So we're going to play Energy uh, by that artist. And again, you're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1.
Listen me. I beg you open your ears for any waiting that they say. Waiting that they talk. And a serious talk that they talk. Go. No beating anger here speaking. Listen. In this world we deal, members say, yeah, one day go come when we all go go. Before long, we go meet Mama Godo. When we they meet Mama Godo, tell me, waiting, you go see. We the my life jam nation. You realize all the time we wasting. You realize all the pain we facing. Please pour up feminine libation. My gosh, we raising. Please sympathize all the lies we raising. Please realize all the time. All right. Well, welcome back. We are going to end that song a little bit early because I forgot that I totally want to ask Julie about something else. But that song was Energy by Sampa the Great. Uh, this is Lynn Vartan. You're listening to KSU Youth under 91.1. On the Apex Hour, if you're interested in other events and other things that we do, our website is scu.edu slash Apex. Apex. Welcome back, Julie. Thanks. Okay, I want to ask you about this amazing part of your history, which is that you discovered a lost poem. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, so I think this is kind of maybe one of the more interesting parts of my academic background. So my first semester uh, when I was at my PhD program, I was in a class um, and we were, you know, part of a project we were having to do. We were looking for copies of texts by this um, African-American poet, Jupiter Hammond, who was the, the first published African-American poet in the U.S. So my group was trying to find a particular document that he wrote, and I was trying to find that, and I kept you know, failing to find that. But through that path, I ended up finding this other poem that didn't fit the bibliography we had for Hammond's known works. Uh, and I remember going to my professor, Cedric May, in that class and being like, I, I got this. I'm not sure. I, I saw this, you know, line in a, a finding aid at the Yale archives. I'm not sure. And he's like, I'm not sure either. Why don't you follow up? And it turned out it was this poem that no one had heard of. Because um, Jupiter Hammond has a very small body of work. Um, but this poem was just completely unknown. It had sort of slipped through through the cracks. And how did you find it? I mean, you just stumbled on it. I mean, was it what did you have to dig for? I it? didn't have to dig. So what happened is I was emailing librarians, I believe at the New York Public Library. And it was kind of like this lesson in failure. Like I would email them like, do you have this that I'm looking for? They'd say no, but I'll email I'll email someone else. And then they would contact me like, nope, don't have what you're looking for. And this kind of went on. And I just kind of kept feeling more and more like a failure. And then finally, a librarian was like, I don't have what you're looking for. But I found this entry in a finding aid that, you know, here, here's the link to it, do what you want with it. And so it was kind of like it was hiding in plain sight, but yeah. no one had really, it never dawned on anyone what it was until I looked at it and I took it to my professor and, and we're like, oh, 
this is something new. And it was obviously his. I mean, yeah, it was obviously his. And actually, um, you know, a couple months later, the next semester, um, he and I took a like week long trip to Yale and like went to their archives and we did the whole authentication process. So like we actually got to look, it was a handwritten document. So (sighs) we got to look at it and we like did research into watermarks and paper styles and ink so that we could really authenticate that. Yes. And, you know, it was also things like we would compare the writing style, like there was common phrasing and things where it's like, clearly, you know, without a doubt, this is a Jupiter Hammond poem. I mean, to have that happen in school must have started this great sort of search for you. Because one of the things that's so great about your career is that you seem to really love going in and finding things, Mm -hmm. you know, you sort of find things and to have this experience early on seems pretty exciting. It it was really exciting and unbelievable that it was just, you know, one of those things where I was like, you know, if I hadn't followed up on that, if I hadn't kept asking about it, if I hadn't taken that class, you know, all of those what ifs of it could have slipped through the cracks. And, and actually, that discovery is what led me to specialize in early American literature. And, you know, then kind of set me on my path from then. Fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing that. I definitely wanted to get to that. And I was like, oh, we don't have any time, but I'm going to get to it anyway. So my last question that I ask everyone is is really just uh, something that's that's exciting you right now. Mm-hmm. And it can be anything. It can be, you know, a movie or a TV show or food or whatever. But mm-hmm. Julie McCallan, what's turning you on right now? Yeah, so a sort of silly thing that's made me happy this week. So, you know, yesterday I got a new sweatshirt. I know that sounds like dorky. That's um, awesome. <laughs> no, so backstory, like I'm a super big fan of, of Golden Girls. That's like one of my all-time favorite oh, TV shows. Yay. So yesterday I got a, a sweatshirt that had uh, it has Sophia Petrillo on it. Um, it's just like a tropical background, and she's wearing like a Gucci tracksuit. Oh, my God, um, that's fabulous. Yeah, it, it, it's fabulous, and it was just my favorite thing. It made me so happy yesterday, and I, I low he wanted to wear it for my lecture today but I'm like it, it wouldn't have if it had made sense I would have but it didn't um, but yeah that was just something that just put a smile on my face when that arrived in the mail yesterday oh that is good vibes all around yeah. that's, I mean how can you have a bad day wearing that I know right <laughs> well thank you for sharing that okay well that's all the time we have now the book is called On the Plains and Among the Peaks or How Mrs. Maxwell Made Her Natural History Collection by Mary Dart and the edition is by Julie McCowan who is an English professor at Southern Utah University and our faculty distinguished lecturer for this year. Julie, thank you so much for spending time with me. Thank you. It was wonderful. Awesome, everyone. We will see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu slash apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1. Take to a honey hole where the bluegill